turning point in our How Should We Then Live book. As you open up your chapter 8 there, take a look at the first paragraph in How Should We Then Live of chapter 8, you see that he made the point at the beginning of the book that in order to understand where we are today, we need to trace and follow the ideas from the past and along three lines. The philosophic, the scientific, and the religious. And so that's what he then does in chapters 8 and 9. He follows how we come to where we are today in the areas of philosophy, science, and religion so that you can understand modern man as he was called in the 20th century. <clears throat> and now uh, we've gone a little bit past that. And as I've read ahead in the book, I've recognized how prescient, that is, knowing ahead of time, Schaefer was, and how his predictions made in the mid-70s, when I was just a baby, are pretty much exactly how things have gone and where we are in Western civilization. So that shows that he did a good job of tracing these lines of thought and being able to follow those lines to where they were leading. So if he'd written this book and we'd gone in a totally different direction from what he predicted, well then we probably wouldn't want to read the book. That would mean that his lines were kind of going off in the wrong directions. But when they all converge and it's like, yep, that's exactly where we are, then that helps us to understand that the knowledge that he's giving us of philosophy, science, and theology as it's developed in Western civilization in the last 500 years is, is pretty accurate and is a good analysis because he has a intelligent and proper worldview that is able to analyze these trends and see uh, what actually is going on. So I really do appreciate that and you're going to appreciate that as you continue through the rest of the book. So chapter 8 recognizes that we've kind of laid the foundation in the preceding chapters and now we're in the era of modern man. And so he, he goes through this, and I really enjoyed these chapters, and this is pretty much the reason why I selected the book, is that as I was going through my higher education, high school, college, I started to realize that a lot of the things that he's talking about here, as I was a student of history and Western civilization, and was interested in those ideas, and I was interested specifically in the history of philosophy. And so as I took my history classes, I always paid extra attention to the history of philosophy. And so I, I wanted to brush up on that myself, and I wanted to you to get that idea of the importance of understanding how we've gotten to where we are in our thinking. And once you see it, then you start to make sense of everything and the movements that are going on around us that can seem so chaotic and confusing, but uh, insight gives understanding. And so he does a good job of bringing it down to these, these basic developments and understanding all of that. So I want to talk about what was in the chapter, and I want to do so by also referring to your terms and definitions chart that I gave you at the beginning of the year. So go ahead and get your book out. We will reference it one or two more times. And then also get out your terms and definitions chart. And, uh, well, not chart, but pages, and we'll be referencing that several times in our lecture this morning as well. We have some time at the end, we're going to break up into small groups, 
and discuss the study guide questions that you were working on the last couple of weeks. All right, so he gives a good definition for rationalism at the beginning of chapter 8. So, uh, again, my pages are different than yours. I should have borrowed my kid's book this week, but I'm stubborn. And so, just page, uh, well, not the page, but the second page on chapter number 8, towards the bottom, if you find the paragraph that says, uh, non-Christian philosophers, find the paragraph that starts with non-Christian philosophers. It's number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. The sixth paragraph in chapter 8. I want you to catch here the definition for rationalism that he uses throughout these chapters, well, throughout the book, right? And this is very important because when he talks about reason and how people are escaping from reason, it's a particular type of reason that he's talking about. He's talking about autonomous human reasoning. Everybody say autonomous human reasoning. Autonomous human reasoning. Autonomous human reasoning is different from a theistic uh, reasoning where reason is subject to the revelation in the mind of God. And so reason itself is a great thing, but autonomous human reasoning is not a great thing. And it has serious problems that is what is explored in these chapters. That's why we have the breakdown in philosophy and science is because of autonomous human reasoning. And so he describes that here. He doesn't use those terms specifically, but he says, non-Christian philosophers from the time of the Greeks, just before our modern period, had three things in common. First, they were rationalists. And that is what he means by rationalism. They assume that man, though he is finite and limited, so human reasoning, finite, limited, can begin from himself, that's autonomous, and gather enough particulars to make his own universals. So it's humanist because it begins with himself. It's autonomous because it's not subject to the law of God and the revelation of God. And then it's rational because he's trying to reason from particulars to universals. And this is not the only form of reason. What kind of reason is it that you take, uh, you start with particulars and you try to reason to universals? What kind of reason is that? Yep. Inductive. That's inductive reasoning. There's several different types of reasoning. The two major types of reasoning are inductive and deductive. So inductive, you're starting with particulars. So you're studying fish and a particular kind of fish. And then you start to make general principles about that fish based upon your study of 200 different examples of that species of fish. That's inductive reasoning. You're getting to general principles based upon particular observations. And it's a good form of reasoning, but it's not the only form of reasoning. And the problem with inductive reasoning is that it doesn't lead to absolute truth. It leads to probable conclusions. So there's a probability that... If the 100 fish that I've looked at all are green in this species, well, then it's probable that all fish in this species are going to be green. But there's always the possibility that there's a, a very rare genetic example of a fish in this species who ends up being blue. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know it. But there's that possibility. And so we say it's probable 
that all of this type of fish are going to have green scales. But that's a probability. So inductive reasoning does not lead to certainty because you do not have exhaustive knowledge of the universe. You would have to be able to see and know every example of this type of fish in order to make a general statement that was 100% certain about that, if you were in reasoning inductively. So inductive reasoning is always limited based on the fact that our knowledge is finite and limited. So human reasoning that's inductive, trying to get to general principles based upon our observation of particulars, is always going to be limited because our knowledge is limited, our experience is limited. So that's important to, to recognize. And when he's talking about rationalism, when he's talking about reason and uh, the escape from reason to be able to find morals and values and ethics, it was because of this reductionistic worldview, this reductionistic epistemology. Look at your page there for epistemology. So on terms and definitions, epistemology is, you can see it there, the branch of philosophy that deals with knowing and the methods of obtaining knowledge. So how do we know things? How do we obtain that knowledge? When you're studying that and you're trying to figure out what is the right way and what is the wrong way and what's the best way and what's the not best way of gaining knowledge, well, that you're in the area of philosophy known as epistemology. It's a very important part of epistemology. Knowledge is vital. You can't live without knowledge. And so, the reductionistic epistemology that says, well, the only way that you can really know things is through inductive reasoning, starting with the particulars and then formulating general principles based upon our observation, our experimentation, and our reasoning, then that's what has led to modern man being in such a sorry state. It started with a bad epistemology, it started with a bad view of the universe, that is ontology, and the reductionistic epistemology goes together with a reductionistic, reductionistic ontology. Ontology is the study of, of being, uh, what is. And so the reductionistic ontology is called philosophical naturalism. What is philosophical naturalism? Well, he explains in chapter 8 that when science moved from viewing the universe, that is the ontological view of science, viewing the universe as existing in uniformity, that is that there's a consistent pattern to how the universe operates, to the, the laws of uh, physics and all of that type of thing, that there's a uniform, uniformity in an open system of cause and effect that came out of the Christian worldview. So in the Christian worldview, the system of the physical universe is open because there is something that is bigger, there is something that is higher, there is something that is greater than the universe itself. And that something is God, the personal God. And that we, being created in the image and likeness of God, we are unique in this creation and that we are not causally determined by physics, but that we also are spiritual beings, that we are supernatural in some sense of that word, where we are not bound and determined by the laws of physics. You are more than just chemistry and physics. 
because you are created in the image and likeness of God. But when they shifted away from that open system where God and man were outside of the machine and were not causally determined by the physics and the chemistry, they shifted to a closed system that was practically atheistic, although the word God stuck around for quite a while. But as they operated in their epistemology, they were practically atheists. And when the philosophers did this, when they made this shift, they in fact made God irrelevant to understanding the universe. And by effect, they killed God. And this took centuries for everybody to, to figure out and work out all the, the ramifications of this position that they had adopted. But that was eventually where things ended up. And Friedrich Nietzsche, who was talked about at the end of these chapters, he was a smart man, and he, he was the one who stated, we have killed God, that's what we've done, by adopting this naturalistic, reductionistic, closed system view of the universe, and this limited, this reductionistic epistemology. Now, he didn't think that it was wrong, he thought it was right that they had done this, but he was recognizing that this is, in fact, the consequences of what we've done, and so... By killing God, people actually killed themselves. Because if God is not free from the system, if God is causally determined by physics and chemistry, then we also are not free. And we also are causally uh, determined by the system. And therefore, man is no longer a, a free, rational creature, but he is really just a behavioral animal whose behavior is determined by the physical universe. And that's a pretty sorry state to, to be in, and that's an unlivable uh, position on humanity. And so, as we go through the chapter, he shows you how there's this bifurcation, there's this parting of ways between the philosophical naturalism that is reductionistic, that is what their reason is based upon, because this is their presupposition. Now, I think that's important for us to understand. That science never demonstrated, and science never could demonstrate, it's not the right tool to demonstrate it, this is a philosophical uh, <coughs> argument. Science never demonstrated that the physical world is all that there is, or all that there was, or all that there ever will be, as Carl Sagan famously say, stated in the 20th century. That was a presupposition, it was a philosophical presupposition that changed in the scientific community. And presuppositions are very important. It's a key word that you want to keep in mind as we go through the rest of this course. Uh, the shoguns of apologetics, like Schaefer and Bonson, they are known as apologists, defenders of Christian worldview, Christian faith, from a presuppositional point of view. That they're not just giving evidence, saying, well, here's evidence that the Christian worldview is right. Here's evidence that the Christian worldview comports with reality. Uh, here, the Christians can make sense of, of this fossil, and the Christians can make sense of uh, starlight from distant galaxies, and the, the Christians can make sense of all this stuff in our worldview. Here's the evidence. Well, that's inductive reasoning. It's, it's trying to reason from the evidence to a general conclusion. And that is good, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't lead you to 
absolute truth. It doesn't lead you to certain conclusions. You could look at all the evidence and say, well, yeah, that looks like a lot of evidence, but what about this evidence over here? And then you've got to weigh the evidence and, and try to figure out uh, what is the most probable worldview. And that's the way a lot of evidentialist apologists will approach it. Uh, a lot of apologists who are in the world today, they, they think that I can't really prove beyond any shadow of doubt that God exists. All I can do is make it very probable. I, I can make you think that it's highly likely that God exists because they're using this inductive method of demonstrating from the evidence. But deductive reasoning does not lead to probable conclusions, but it leads to certain conclusions. And so when we're not arguing based upon scientific evidence, the particular, but when we're arguing based upon logic and reason from a deductive point of view, then we can reach a certain conclusion. And that's why Dr. Jason Lyle, who I think is a great apologist, uh, both if you're looking for evidence from an inductive point of view, because he's an astronomer and he's good in that field, or if you're looking for the deductive reasoning that leads to certain conclusions that the Christian worldview is the right one. He's good on both of those because he's written on logic and he's got a great book on logic. And I'd recommend that to you. It's sad that we don't teach logic anymore, and I think there's a reason for that. that Satan has a design in having people who, who don't uh, know logic and can't spot logical fallacies, and he uses that to great advantage among the people of our generations. So I encourage you to make sure that logic is a part of your education, and Jason Lyle's introduction to logic textbook is a great one to use. And so, where was I? Um, we're talking about how naturalistic presuppositions are what is at the root of this split, this bifurcation that has taken place in modern man's thinking between when he's looking at the universe and doing science, well, then he uses his autonomous human reasoning to study the universe. But when it comes to matters of meaning, what does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of life? What is right? What is wrong? The, the area of ethics. Then he doesn't use reason, but instead he leaps with this leap of faith into what he wants to believe to be true, either as an individual or as a community. And it's very important to, to see that and understand that. So let's walk through some of the philosophers and the development of this bifurcation, this split in the uh, thinking of modern man and his beliefs. So, let's look at the philosophy here. Now, one of the terms I want you to take notice of on your terms and definitions sheet is determinism. So find determinism on there. It's alphabetically ordered. Determinism is the teaching that every event in the universe is caused and controlled by natural law. Right? So if, if you believe that the physical universe is all that there is, it's a very reductionist view of the universe, but that's what most people are, are dealing with when they're talking about science these days. And they've confused that view with the word science, as if you can't have science if you don't have philosophical naturalism. Um, but if you are a philosophical naturalist, then by reason, by logic, you have to deduce that every event in the universe is caused and controlled by natural law. And he gave the example of Shakespeare at the end of, uh, I think it was chapter 8, where he said, you know, 
500 years ago, a collection of molecules that we call William Shakespeare uh, composed Hamlet. And it's just molecules, it's just chemistry, it doesn't really have any meaning beyond that because the universe is just matter in motion. That's all that really there is. Everything else is, is just our perception and is not reality. And so William Shakespeare was biologically determined from the beginning of the universe to exist and to write what he wrote, not because he is a creative, free individual in the image of God, but because that's just what chemistry and physics did by chance, by random chance. So that determinism is what flows out of the philosophical naturalism, and that is a pretty sorry state to existence, a pretty limited way of viewing the world. And it doesn't line up with our experience. It doesn't line up with what our heart tells us. And so that's why there is this escape from reason into our experience or our heart. And that's what basically existentialism is. Now, if determinism is true, that there's this uniformity of natural causes and a closed system of cause and effect that determines everything that happens, including human behavior, well then, that leads to the science of behaviorism. Where how is it that we can manipulate the system in order to generate the behavior that we want. And so behaviorism has become a, a big field in psychology and sociology, and it's a problem. There's a lot that uh, is the danger here with determinism and behaviorism. Now, um, let's start with uh, Descartes. Descartes is a good place to start. René Descartes, French philosopher, his famous saying was cogito ergo sum. So back then they still wrote in Latin, I think. And so what does cogito ergo sum mean? Yeah. I think, therefore I am. Right. Have you heard that before? I think, therefore I am. And so Descartes, he wanted to say, I want to get rid of all presuppositions. I want to get rid of, of everything I think I know is true. And I want to be a skeptic. And I want to find out. Where do I start? What is a thought that I can build a rational system of beliefs and thinking, a philosophy, upon? And so he got down to himself because all he really knows, all he really experiences is, is what's going on in here. That your brain is what is seeing and you're hearing and is processing and is making sense. And so he comes back to his own thinking and says, I think, therefore I am. And that was his starting point for his epistemology, for his philosophy, was his own thinking. And therefore, from that, he thought that he could then build a system that was rational, that started with man. Now, starting with man, uh, that is humanism. Uh, is that on the sheet? Yeah. So look at humanism on your terms and definitions page. Humanism... The system of philosophy based upon human reason, actions, and motives without concern of deity or supernatural phenomena. And so Descartes started with a rationalism that was based upon humanism, starting with himself. I think, therefore, I am. Now, of course, it'd be wiser to start with the great I am than to start with the little I am myself. But that's not where uh, humanistic reasoning starts autonomous human reasoning. 
So Descartes was optimistic. He thought through autonomous human reasoning, we can come to understanding and have truth. However, everyone who came after Descartes figured out that's not really practical. It doesn't work. Great theory there, Descartes, but autonomous human reasoning leads to some pitfalls. Um, let's talk about Rousseau. I don't like Rousseau. I don't have much respect for him as a philosopher. Uh, he seems like a raving madman to me. The type of person who just wants to destroy everything, burn it all down, and who for no real good reason, thinks that he can build something better in his place. And so Rousseau had the idea that civilization is the problem. So he started off in his philosophy demonstrating that man is essentially good. And if man is essentially good, then how do you explain all of the bad things that mankind does? Well, it's because we've strayed too far from nature, and our civilization has kind of uncivilized us, uh, if you want to think in his contradictory uh, way. He is a, a man who tried to bring freedom and tyranny and wed them together. He's, he's not a very good thinker. He just seems like he's full of contradictions to me. But um, he has had a profound impact. And I like the example that was included by Schaefer in the book of the French painter Gauguin, who abandoned his family, moved to Tahiti because he thought that he could find freedom among the noble savages. That we got to get away from Western civilization and all of its corruption. And if we just get back to the noble savage there, we'll be able to live in harmony with nature and the universe and everything will be great. And of course, he was sorely disappointed. And he didn't find the nobility and the freedom and the goodness among the savages of Tahiti. And yet, this myth continues on. And it's uh, going to be published again in popular media as... Uh, Schaefer pointed out that a lot of these philosophies that we've studied are dead, and yet their ideas live on uh, among the popular uh, people, and it's going to take time for the society to die along with these dead philosophical ideas before then society figures out that uh, we never should have taken this path to begin with. So the philosophers are always ahead, and they are uh, you know, telling people what they're going to believe and what they're going to do, and then people believe that and do that. And, and it doesn't go well. So, uh, as I mentioned, this idea of the noble savage, it comes at, at us in, in our popular media, especially what's aimed at kids. And there's a new movie coming out, Avatar, The Way of Water. And I saw the first Avatar 20 years ago, or whatever, 14 years ago. It was a long time. And it's basically this idea of the noble savage. Civilization bad, people who live in harmony with nature good. And that's, that's the basic worldview that is going to be on display also in the sequel. And this is not new with Avatar. It goes back, like you said, to Rousseau and, and Gauguin. Uh, it was also in an old movie that is actually a much better movie than Avatar called Dances with Wolves, uh, where the guy has to escape his American civilization and go live with the natives, and that's where he finds freedom and peace and, and all of that type of thing among the noble savage. But... The sad truth is, is that people are not good, and that no society is free from the effects of the fall, and whether you're in a highly civilized society, or whether you're in a relatively uncivilized, if you want to use those terms, uh, you're going to find the sinfulness of sin, and you're going to find the depravity of the human nature. Uh, so Rousseau, he just wanted to, to burn down the culture, start over, and then force everybody to be free. 
with his ridiculous contradictions. <clears throat> now, David Hume I have more respect for. Um, and when you start getting into guys like David Hume, you start to realize that philosophy is extremely complex. I mean, they're not just dealing with one or two issues. They're dealing with a, a whole variety of issues. And, and uh, people are complex. And so philosophy is, is exceedingly complex. There's nothing more complex in the universe than the human mind and the human heart. And so don't think that because you've read Francis Schaeffer's analysis of the flow of philosophy in the last few hundred years, that now you are an expert on all of these philosophers. You are not. You know next to nothing about David Hume. I know next to nothing about David Hume. Even if you fully understood Schaeffer's argument, which I think is a good one, and I think it's true, that doesn't mean you know everything about Western philosophy. You, if you start reading and start studying Western philosophy, you'll, you'll figure it out pretty quick that you don't know anything. And this is where a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of knowledge in itself as long as the knowledge is true. Uh, what is knowledge? You guys remember the definition for knowledge that we gave at the beginning of the year? I had to look it up again. I forgot. Justified belief. So, if you believe what he says, you've got to believe about the history of Western philosophy. If you can justify that belief, if you can show that that belief is true, then that's knowledge. So, even if your belief is justified and it's true knowledge, it's still just a little bit of knowledge in the whole field of Western philosophy, or even in just one person like David Hume. And I appreciate this about Jason Lyle. I've been listening to him recently. That he talks about how you can't know everything, even in your own field. That he's an astro, astro, astrophysicist, I think. Some kind of astronomer. And he says, I don't know everything about astronomy. And even in my own little specialized field that I've researched and written on and done you know, uh, papers on, I don't know everything about my own little field in astronomy. And so, the more you learn, the more you understand what you don't know. And that's why I want you to stay humble as young students that... Even if you're getting good knowledge from guys like Schaefer, recognize that there's a lot you don't know. But we want you to know things, and we want you to know good things. We just want you to stay humble about what you know. Um, so Hume, he is the one who first clearly expounded the problem of the is and the ought. You guys remember me talking about this earlier in the year? The problem of the is and the ought is that you can't get an ought from an is. Everybody say, you can't get an ought from an is. You can't get an from Now, what is an is? An is is a datum. An is is what you're taking a particular, okay? So, is is that I, I'm a 47-year-old male wearing a green shirt and, and uh, denim jeans. That's what is up on the stage. But you can't get an ought from an is. You can't say, well, you ought to be 25 years old. Or you ought to be wearing a tuxedo. Now, you can't get an is from an ought. You have to get that ought from someplace else. And what someplace else can you get it from if the natural world is all there is, all there ever was, or all there ever will be? So this philosophical naturalism that leads to an epistemology of autonomous human reasoning can never get to what ought to be. It can only tell you what is. Okay? Uh, David Hume understood that. And clearly expounded that. Um, now, when he talked about 
pantheism and how uh, some of these guys viewed nature as being God. I want you to I want you to look on your sheet and look at the word philosophy. Okay. Philosophy is a complex word. It's kind of hard for me to get my my arms around it and to understand it. But here's the definition that that we've used for our apologetics classes in the past and we're using again. The study of seeking knowledge and wisdom in understanding the nature of the universe, man, ethics, art, love, purpose. Purpose says teleology and man is anthropology and the study of the universe and man and ethics, art, love, purpose. Well, this is basically the study of everything that is most foundational and most important, except for one thing. Hmm. What's missing in the important things that are being studied by philosophy? God. Right? So, philosophy is good, but a philosophy that says, well, God's not really important, and we can really just seek knowledge and wisdom about the universe and ourselves and right and wrong and what is beautiful and what our purpose is and the meaning of life. And, and we don't need God to understand any of that. Well, that's bad. Okay, so that's, that's humanistic, basically atheistic philosophy. And that's what a lot of philosophy has been. Now, the work of the philosopher and the work of the theologian overlap quite a bit. The difference is, is that the theologian starts with God and says, God's the most important. We understand God, then we're going to understand the universe, we're going to understand ourselves, we're going to understand right and wrong, we're going to be able to understand beauty and purpose and meaning and all of these things, because it all depends upon God. But, if you're studying these things without reference to God, then you're going to come up with some pretty bad answers. And so, when we're talking about the philosophy of Western civilization, notice that we're largely talking about this. This study of seeking knowledge and wisdom without reference to God. And without reference to God means basically autonomous human reasoning. Okay? So, in one sense, philosophy is bad because it seems to be the domain of autonomous human reasoning. In another sense, philosophy is good because, yeah, should we understand, should we seek wisdom about the universe and about man and about all these things? Yes, we should. But we shouldn't do it apart from God. That's, that's my point. Samuel Taylor Coolidge is one of my favorite poets. And poetry is a, a wonderful thing. And I agree with the secular autonomous human philosopher when he said that art gives us hope that there is some meaning in the universe, even though our autonomous human reasoning tells us that there isn't. Uh, yet there's this thing called art. And so, maybe there is. And, and we just hold on to that hope in the midst of our existential angst created by our autonomous human reasoning that there is some purpose and meaning and beauty and, and all of that in the universe because there is art. Uh, however, that doesn't give us any content of the meaning. It doesn't give us any way to know uh, what the truth is about these matters. It just gives us hope that there is such a thing out there somewhere, but we have no means of attaining it because of our reductionistic view of the universe and our poor epistemology. Anyway, Samuel Taylor Coolidge wrote that self-knowledge, as it was one of the highest dictums of ancient Greek philosophy, that, that really, if you want to become a great philosopher, you have to know yourself, which you know, is kind of one of the main things there in philosophy, understanding man. Know yourself, right? 
Coolidge has a poem on self-knowledge, and I encourage you to look it up and, and read it if you haven't, and if you have, read it again, it's really good, where he says that it's so foolish to try to understand yourself, but that you need to start with understanding God. Now, Coolidge is in the line of English romantic poets alongside guys like William Wordsworth, and so I noticed that Schaefer used Wordsworth as an example of the, the fallen human reasoning, the autonomous human reasoning, and the, the worship of nature, and this escape from reason that he's tracing out in these chapters. But he didn't mention Coolidge, who is also in that area of the Romantic poets, but who started with knowledge of God before knowledge of man and the universe. And so, not everything uh, in these streams is bad but you want to identify where the real problem is. And I agree that Wordsworth uh, probably was a part of the, this problem that we're, that we're detailing and describing here. Um, so where were we? We were talking about philosophy, right? And so let's get back to the philosophers and the flow here. So after Rousseau, after Hume, then he moved from Wordsworth and natural law and he started talking about Immanuel Kant. Now, they were starting to figure out that you can't get the ought from the is, and that this autonomous human reasoning was going to create a problem for trying to find meaning and ethics, which are having to deal with the ought rather than the is. And so Immanuel Kant tried to come up with a way to use autonomous human reasoning and this view of the universe in a closed system of cause and effect to, in order to still bring together uh, a man's search for meaning in a rational way. Now, his most famous book that I've heard about repeatedly is called Critique of Pure Reason, written in 1780, 1781. So Descartes, he thought through pure reason we can attain a knowledge of the truth. And Immanuel Kant comes along and says, no, you can't. Um, see what I did there? He said, there's, there's a critique that I have of pure reason. You're going to need something besides pure reason if you're going to get to the ought of what we ought to do. And so Immanuel Kant, he, he put the problem in the terms of the noumenal world versus the phenomenal world. A phenomena is something that you can see and observe in the physical world. There was a phenomena in the night sky last night that some people thought was a, an unidentified flying object, a UFO. Uh, that's a, a phenomena. It's, it's something that is seen, something that is observed. Whereas the noumenal world is what's taking place inside your mind. The phenomenal world is out there. The noumenal world is the world of ideas. And this goes back to Plato and Aristotle's ideas of the, the universals and the particulars. So the particulars are the phenomena. The universals are the noumenal. Uh, and he was trying to figure out a way to bring these together. But he failed, because you can't do it. Right? Um, now, Hegel, he's the next major philosopher that was covered in the chapters. He was a, a 19th century German philosopher who taught dialectical materialism. All right? So Hegel, I'm going to put this up here, dialectical materialism. This was his epistemology. I don't know why I try. I can't write. <clears throat> Too much typing. 
dialectical materialism was the epistemology of Hegel, where he said that no single statement can capture the truth about reality, but that our understanding of reality is always growing by one statement put together with another statement that seems to be contrary to this statement, and then yet you bring those two ideas together to form a new idea, and this is what is known as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So you've got your thesis, your statement about reality, but then you've got your antithesis, which is a seemingly contrary statement about reality, and yet they both have good evidence for them. They both seem rational. And so these battle each other until they form a new idea, which is the synthesis, the putting together of these two seemingly contrary ideas. And that this synthesis becomes the new thesis. All right? So philosophers, they come up with an idea. Other philosophers come along and critique that idea. So you got Descartes. Reason. Rationalism. Autonomous human reasoning will lead us to a knowledge of the truth. And then you got Immanuel Kant comes along and says, nope, I've got a critique of your position. And so through this debate, through this discussion that the philosophers have, you end up with a new idea that's the synthesis that becomes the accepted view among the philosophers. And then another philosopher, brilliant, comes along and says, ah, actually there's a problem with your, your new thesis. And he comes up with an antithesis and there's this di dialectical battle. Uh, dialectical means that you're pursuing truth through question and answer, through discussion. Uh, two different points of view and it's like a debate. So we live in a materialistic universe, but through the dialectical method, our understanding of the universe is always growing and progressing. So it's kind of an evolutionary view of knowledge and philosophy, a survival of the fittest type of idea. The ideas battle out, uh, an idea emerges uh, out of the goo, and, and that's the progress in our understanding, which corresponds with the progress of biological evolution. Okay? So he's a materialist, and, and he has this view that you can't ever actually have truth, you just have a progress towards the truth. Um, this is where you start to see the giving up of ever having truth. That Descartes started off optimistic. Yay, we can do it. Reason. And now people have said, oh, that's not working very well, and they're starting to give up, and, and Hegel says, Eh, the best we can do is make progress. We can't actually have truth. Now, this reminds me of a great verse in the Bible. The pastoral epistles of Paul are written towards the end of his life after he's had a lifetime of battling uh, Greek-Roman philosophy and ideas that were current in his time. And so, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote... Where's my verse? 2 Timothy 3.7 that people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Dialectical materialism. Always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's exactly a description of Hegel. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So these are new ideas in one sense. In another sense, they're just the same old, same old coming around again. A little bit of history repeating, as the song says. Now, Hegel had a great influence on someone that 
I deeply despise, Karl Marx. Uh, so Marx kind of took Hegel's ideas and, and uh, did his own thing with them and came up with something even more abominable. And we'll talk more about him as the year goes on, but he's not factoring in in this chapter. I just wanted to, to bring him up here. The next philosopher that was highlighted was Soren Kierkegaard. And I've got respect for Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he undertook to explain how it is that even though autonomous human reasoning leads us to despair when it comes to answering the most important questions about meaning and purpose and right and wrong and all of that, he found optimism in what he called a leap of faith. And so this is Kierkegaard. You really want to understand Kierkegaard for understanding 20th century man and really even 21st century. It's still, I think, very Kierkegaardian in its view of ethics and meaning and purpose. That there's really no way to prove that your idea about what's right and wrong is correct. Autonomous human reasoning just deals with what, what is, and you can't get an ought from that. And so if you're going to go around telling people what ought to be, well, you ought not to do this, and you ought to do that. Well, then you can't base it on reason. All you can do is base it upon your own personal leap of faith. Well, this is what's true for me. Okay? Not true for you. I can't demonstrate it from knowledge. I can't justify it. Uh, it's not a belief that is justifiable, so it's not knowledge. It's not in the same area of like scientific knowledge that we can demonstrate through inductive reasoning. But no, this is, this is just what I feel, what I believe, what I choose. And so that's where the debate is in our society on these issues. So people say, well, I believe abortion is wrong. I believe abortion isn't wrong. I believe it's a baby. I believe it's not a baby. And you can believe what you want to believe because you can't get an ought from an is. That's where autonomous human reasoning has led uh, the society that we live in. So Kierkegaard, he figured that out and he basically said, yep, that's the way it is. If you want religion, if you want ethics, if you want meaning and purpose, you just have to leap of faith it. Now, when he's talking about a leap of faith, he's not talking about the same kind of faith that the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about faith. And we can explore that more in the future. Anyway, back to the philosophers. So, that leads us into modern man. Uh, going from Rousseau, the optimist, to Kierkegaard, the one who says, no, you just have to leap of faith it. We followed that through Kant and Kierkegaard and Hegel. Uh, so then that leads us to the existentialists in the 20th century. Kierkegaard was a mid-19th century Danish philosopher. And so once philosophers accepted this new thesis, uh, as uh, Kierkegaard had presented it very well, then what they had to do then was embrace existentialism where Jean-Paul Sartre, the 20th century French existentialist, sought meaning in the human will, not in reason. He said, well, we have our reason, but we also have our will that can function independently of our reason. Man is composed of different aspects. We've got our mind, we've got that intellectual side, but we've also got our volition, our will, we've also got our emotions and affections. And he says, just through a sheer act of will, you can choose what is meaningful for you. Through an act of your will, you can choose for yourself what is right and wrong. That's what Sartre uh, based it upon. 
Now, this is actually very satanic. Very satanic. Um, Paradise Lost was written by John Milton uh, way before all of this. He's uh, after the time of Shakespeare. Uh, maybe early 17th century? I forget. Anyway, way before Jean-Paul Sartre promoted this, this satanic thought of the human will being the, the basis for what's right and wrong and your meaning and purpose in life, uh, the, a great passage in Paradise Lost, there's problems with Paradise Lost, but there's a great passage in it where Satan has been cast out of heaven into hell. And as he's there in hell, he determines by a sheer act of his will that he can make a heaven out of hell and that he has the indomitable will that will not be defeated by being cast out of heaven, that his will can make a heaven out of hell. And so this is exactly what Sartre is talking about. Even though we have this existential angst and we're, we're living in this, this hell, so to speak, by an act of the will, we can make it what we want it to be. Um, do you know what the ethic of Satanism is? Uh, now, you know, maybe different Satanists will, will state it a little bit differently. But from what I've read, what I understand, the ethic of Satanism is very simple. It's do what you will as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Do what you will. You get to choose by your will what you want to do, what is right for you. That's Satanism. And that's what Jean-Paul Sartre recommended. That was his philosophy. Uh, so you see how worldly philosophy is, as the Bible describes it, the doctrines of demons. And that we need to be on our guard. These are not just humanistic ideas. These are actually satanic ideas that the prince of the power of the air is propagating among those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, we get to Martin Heidegger, and Heidegger was a 20th century German existentialist, and he introduced the term metaphysical angst, that there's this angst that we feel as human beings because we live in a universe that is impersonal, we live in a universe that is hostile, that is indifferent, that regards human existence as unexplainable, and, and yet... We can find freedom of choice and responsibility for our own actions. In fact, that's the definition of existentialism from the American Heritage Dictionary. Let me read it for you again. Existentialism, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, this is a very good definition, a philosophy that emphasizes the uniqueness and isolation of the individual experience. So, you as a person, you're isolated uh, and unique in a hostile or indifferent universe. And existentialism regards human existence as unexplainable. Nope, we're escaping from reason, like uh, Schaefer's saying. There's, there's no reasonable explanation for our existence. And stresses freedom of choice and responsibility for the consequences of one's own act. So Jean-Paul Sartre, the human will. Uh, not based on reason, it's just our responsibility, our choice. Now, Martin Heidegger had that term uh, angst, metaphysical angst, and I think that's very descriptive of the, the situation that most people are living in. People who accept this worldview, and this is the worldview that's taught in media and schools, it's the worldview that is, is dominant in Western civilization, that the physical world is all that there actually really is, and the only way to know things is through science, and autonomous human reasoning is our epistemology, and therefore, we have this existential angst that people are living in. 
Now, people are a hodgepodge. Some people accept this partly and accept other things, and they, you know, mix different worldviews and ideas together, and they don't even know that they're doing it. But the angst that people are experiencing is, is largely a part of this existentialism, this existentialist view, which goes back to what we started the lecture with. Um, we'll get into the art next time. We'll talk more about Dada and Salvador Dali and, and all of the absurdness, the ridiculousness of modern art, which comes out of this, this split between reason and meaning. Now, in the last 15 minutes, I do want to talk about the, the theology. Well, what comes out of this in the theology? You guys are doing great. Sticking with me. These are difficult concepts. They're kind of high concepts, very abstract. And so I want you to read the book, watch the video, get the lecture, and hopefully it will start to sink in. That's why I really wanted to emphasize it here in class today. Now, when it comes to the theology, uh, theology in Western civilization has largely been the domain of Christians because we have a, a Christian past. And so most of the theology that's been done has been Christian theology. Now, the theology is always kind of like lagging behind by 50 to 70 years. That the philosophers, they go out in their humanistic, autonomous reasoning, and they, they come up with these ideas that become accepted among the philosophers and seem impressive, and, and everybody that is intelligent starts to agree with. And then the theologians come along and go like, oh, that's where things are, huh? Well, I can work with that. I can make that work with Christian theology. And so then they take some of the ideas from the the philosophers, and they, they try to gel them together with historic Christian theology. That's basically what has happened. And so the theology trails behind a little bit, but it's, it's getting its lead from these atheistic, secular philosophers. So that's where we get guys like Albert Schweitzer. Uh, he wrote the book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, published in 1906. And Albert Schweitzer was questing for the historical Jesus because he thought that the Bible was, was full of myths and fairy tales because the Bible records Jesus walking on water. I mean, we all know people can't walk on water. We know that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect. We know that the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry are, are determined and unbreakable. And so therefore, Jesus didn't really walk on water. I mean, come on. And so they were trying to demythologize the Bible and say, well, what actually happened? When we go back and read the Bible from our perspective of a, a closed system of cause and effect, well, we, we recognize that people were probably, you know, just ex exaggerating, or maybe they misinterpreted what they actually saw. And so the liberal theologians of the 18th and 19th centuries who were falling in the train of the philosophy of the day, they tried to take all of that miracle stuff out of the Bible. And so that's the, the quest for the historical Jesus. And what did he actually do and say uh, once we take all the, the supernatural stuff out of the Gospels? And this led to the Jesus Seminar, which was a, a ridiculous thing in the 20th century, where the, a whole bunch of scholars of the Bible got together and, and they would cast votes as to what they thought Jesus actually said in the Bible. So they take everything that was in the Gospels and they say, what do you think Jesus actually said this in history? And they'd all cast their vote, their little pebble for yes or no, and then they'd, they'd decide by vote of the scholars what Jesus actually said. Uh, that was the Jesus Seminar. Now, 
Albert Schweitzer, his Christianity, his theology, was, a, was obviously a dead end. That it was create, creating the same problems in theology that were being experienced by the, the philosophers, that you can't get an ought from an is. And, and so they were also in a, a position of this angst. And so they needed a theologian, very brilliant, who would be able to do with theology the same thing that had been done in philosophy, the same thing that Kierkegaard had done 70 years earlier, 80 years earlier. Karl Barth comes and does in 1919 when he writes his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans. Romans, one of the most important books in the Bible. Karl Barth publishes a commentary on the book of Romans in which his views that are also uh, just like Kierkegaard, that, yes, the, the Bible, if you just look at it rationally, and our belief that he shared, Karl Barth shared this belief with the Albert Schweitzer and guys like that, that the universe is a closed system of cause and effect. Uh, that, yeah, if you just look at the Bible that way, it's got lots of problems. But let's not just look at the Bible that way. Let's leap of faith it with the Bible and not so much focus on the, the reason problems, but instead just find the power of God's word coming through uh, this book. Now, you can choose anything to leap of faith to. You can choose the Bible to leap of faith to. You can choose uh, drugs to leap of faith to, as the psychedelic drug culture that he brought up. You can choose Krishna to leap of faith to, Buddhism, Hinduism. You can choose occult uh, worship of demons to leap of faith to. You can leap of faith to anything. But what Christian theologians leap, to, leap of faith to is Christianity, the Bible. So Karl Barth was leap of, leap of faithing uh, the Bible. And this is called neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy is not big on propositional truth, not big on Bible inerrancy, and this is what led to the battle for the Bible in the 20th century, and why the doctrine of inerrancy became the dividing line between those who had a biblical worldview and those who were following the course of this world and the satanic philosophies, was the inerrancy of the Bible. And so I'd uh, like to hear from you and your next round of speeches, some of you, on the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. That would be a great informative speech, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And I'm compiling a list of topics for your next speeches. That's going to definitely be on there. Here's a quote from Wikipedia, that wonderful source of truth that is completely not biased on the internet. It says this concerning uh, neo-Orthodox interpretation of the Bible. An existential reading of the Bible would demand that the reader recognize that they are an existing subject, studying the words more as a recollection of events. This is in contrast to looking at a collection of truths that are outside and unrelated to the reader. So we're not reading the Bible as if it's this source of truth that is external to us, but instead we're reading it more as a reader response, that the, the truth is in me, and as I read the Bible, there's this, this exchange of ideas uh, through which truth comes to me, even though the Bible is, is not necessarily propositional truth in and of itself. And, he's, and the, the existentialist reading of the Bible, therefore, it says this, such a reader is not obligated to follow the commandments as if an external agent is forcing these commandments upon them, ooh, but as though they are inside them and getting them from inside. And so a lot of Christians are reading the Bible in an existential manner, Today, you read it 
to kind of discover the truth inside yourself as you interact with this religious book, but you're not going to it as the source of propositional objective truth with commands that, from God that you need to obey. Uh, very different ways of reading the Bible. So just because somebody reads their Bible doesn't mean that they're reading it the same way that Paul read his Bible, or that Peter read his Bible, or that Jesus read his Bible. Now, there's a key thought at the end of these chapters where Schaefer points out where this is going. And he says, basically, at the end of the chapters that we've studied for this week, after meaning is lost, after you give up on actually finding true truth, right? You guys did your speeches on why we need true truth. Once you give that up, like Kierkegaard did, and said, well, you know, you can't use reason to get to truth. You just have to choose your, your truth. Find your truth. Your truth, not the truth. Once you give that up, the next step is to use the sentiments of religious words for manipulation. So people still have the sentiments of religion, even if reason doesn't have anything to do with it. And if you don't believe that these sentiments have any basis in objective reality, well then, what is the use of them? Well, you can use them to manipulate people to do what you want. Once truth is lost, what is left? Well, Nietzsche knew. Nietzsche figured it out. Once truth is given up, all that's left is power. Right? The will to power. And so people will talk about religious ideas, they'll talk about religious sentiments, but these existentialists, they don't believe that any of these things are real, any of these things are true truth, and they're just using that language in order to get what they want. And what most people want, they want power, uh, as Nietzsche described it. And so, what men do with religious ideas is they make systems to control the narrative through manipulation, which is really just a power play. And he's going to go into this in great detail in chapter 12. He's going to elaborate on the manipulation of the people by the elite because of where modern man has arrived based upon what we started with. If you view the universe as a closed system of cause and effect that is purely determined by natural causes, then your view of knowledge is that the only way of actually gaining knowledge is through inductive reasoning, the scientific method. Then there is no such thing as right or wrong. There is no such thing as objective morals. There is no such thing as true truth. And what you end up with is a powerful elite manipulating the population through the sentiments of right and wrong, even though there is no such thing as right and wrong. Now, that sounds pretty bleak. That's pretty sad. Fortunately, that's not all there is to the story. God does exist, and the Bible is revelation from God, and those two truths change everything. The fact that God exists, and the Bible is revelation from him, it destroys the angst, of the existentialist. It creates a love of the truth and a pursuit of the truth, and it gives us hope for this world and for the future of humanity. God exists, the Bible is revelation from him, and we'll demonstrate that more as the year goes along. All right, I didn't leave us a lot of time, but five minutes is five minutes. So here's what I want to do. 
I want the girls to break up into two groups, the guys to break up into two groups. I want to have, uh, can I get two volunteers from some of the, the moms who are here uh, to join the groups and to lead in the discussion? And then uh, will you take one of the men's groups and I'll take one of the men's groups, young men, and we'll, we'll talk about chapter 7 since that's what's freshest on our mind. Get your answers out for the questions to chapter number 7 and we'll have five minutes of discussion on that.